Today, I will be preaching from um, a bit of a depressing passage in the scriptures, uh, Psalm 119. I'm not an emo person. I'm not a very emotional person. My wife will attest to that. Uh, But it's Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. And it's what we call a lament psalm, like a psalm of mourning and anguish and suffering. Um, But yeah, if you could turn with me in uh, to Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. Um, I'm reading from the ESV translation, so it might be slightly different. I think you guys use the NIV. I think so. Yeah, anyways. Uh, I'm going to read from the ESV. Um, so if it is slightly different, I think I think it is on the board. Yeah. Um, so Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. And the word of God reads, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt. For I have kept your testimonies, even though princes sit Plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Amen. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Uh, Father, this is uh, a difficult passage. Uh, Lament Psalms are always difficult passages to understand uh, because we've been programmed to expect a happy ending to all of our problems. Uh, But, Lord, we find through the Lament Psalms that sometimes suffering just keeps going. Uh, And so, Lord, we pray that as we uh, immerse ourselves into this passage, that we come away with a greater understanding of how we are to respond when suffering comes, what the righteous response of your people should be when the going gets tough. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me preach with power and with unction and with clarity to do justice to your word. Uh, And I pray that as we all sit under the authority of your word, that the Holy Spirit would shape us to come away with the greater view of our King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I recently went through a series on the Psalms together with my youth congregation And today's passage, as you are all aware, comes from chapter 119, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, It's 176 verses long, takes about 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how quickly you read. Um, And what's special about this particular chapter is it's a series of poems, 22 acrostic poems. And when we often look to the Psalms, we correlate it directly with worship, don't we? And rightly so. But when we think about worship, we have a tendency, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I always had a tendency to default to a type of worship that's shaped by rejoicing and celebration. Oh, shout out to the worship team, by the way. Oh, that was amazing. Like, I've, I come from a conservative church where we don't really move very much, but I, was, I felt so blessed. Um, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to say that. Um, but when we walk with God and we celebrate in the victory of the gospel when things are going well and our walk with Jesus is everything that we feel it should be. You know, this kind of worship pours naturally from our hearts, doesn't it? We want to praise God in those situations, rejoice in his faithfulness, 
and we want to lift up prayers of thanksgiving, don't we? But what should worship look like when things aren't going well? What happens when life starts to become a struggle and mentally you start buckling under the pressure? I don't know about you, but the second lockdown really, really messed me up a lot. The first lockdown, I was so excited. I was like, I get to stay home and don't have to spend money going, yeah, we stay home. But the second lockdown, it really started to mess me up, like mentally, physically, spiritually. I was an absolute train wreck for such a long period. And it left me with a dilemma. Because when you're in pastoral ministry and you're in this kind of a spiritual condition, how then do you preach to a congregation and encourage them to get to a place where you're not there yourself? How do you encourage people to trust in God when you feel like you're the one that's struggling to trust in his plan and his timing? Because if we're real with each other, I think everyone has been at this, point, this place at some point in your life. And this is actually why I started, started the series on Psalms uh, with my congregation. I started it during the second lockdown when we were online. Because when it comes to our walk with God, it's very easy to worship and pour our heart to him when things are going well. But you have to understand that life doesn't always go well. You go through moments where you experience a crisis that shakes things up, or maybe you go through a season of apathy and indifference, and it'll start to really test your faith. But what we see in the Psalms is a compilation of deep, rich, and more importantly, real responses from God's people in varying seasons of life, both good and bad. Now, I mentioned that when we think of worship, we default to a mode of celebration and rejoicing. However, if you look through all 150 chapters of the Psalms, you'll find that there is a significant portion of this, like a huge amount of the Psalms dedicated to pain, anguish, and suffering. And this is what we call the lament psalms. And with these lament psalms, uh, you'll see that some of them have a happy ending. You know, the psalmist has a problem. He prays and he takes that problem to God. He lays his suffering and anguish down to the Lord in prayer. And in some of the psalms, you see God mightily answer to that prayer. The problem resolve and the psalmist praising God at the end of the chapter. And this seems normal to us, doesn't it? This is what we've been tuned to come to expect. But if you read through other Psalms where you expect a happy ending, you see many instances where the Psalmist prays in the midst of intense suffering, but instead of a mighty response from God that we anticipate, we find that the Psalmist many times is left to continue in his suffering. And that God's response is nothing but silence. And I genuinely believe that God's included passages like this in Scripture. Because this is what reality is like sometimes. Despite how we've been you know, wired to have this romanticized view on what the Christian life should look like, not everything has a happy ending. The reality of human life is that sometimes humanity experiences pain and suffering, often without an explanation 
or a resolution. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, There are many times when God comes through for us in prayer. uh, And when he does, it's so sweet. It's so good. You just want to tell everyone about how God directly answered your prayers. But if you're honest, you have to admit there are times when you pray and pray about a particular situation and you start to wonder, am I praying right? Is is my prayer not going to heaven? Or maybe you start to wonder, maybe God's dropped the ball. Is he forgotten about me? Now, I've got a lot of Muslim friends, uh, Greenacre a lot of Muslim people in Greenacre. But at work in particular, I have a lot of Muslim friends. Um, and one thing I've noticed about them is that there is a statement that they, that, that they chant uh, whenever something happens. And it's, um, you probably heard it. It's Allah Akbar. God is great. And they say it all the time. When things are going good, God is great. Tragedy strikes. God is great. If there's a car crash, God is great. Diagnosed with cancer, Allah Akbar, God is great. We do it in Christian circles as well. That statement, God is good all the time, and then all the time God is good. And when I was younger, I used to look at my Muslim friends that would say Allah Akbar in all situations, and I used to admire that. It's like, how can they praise God in the midst of this chaos? And I desired to have a Christian faith that was kind of like that, unflinching in the face of adversity. But now I look at it, and it seems a bit foolish, very unrealistic and dishonest. Because when we experience suffering on a monumental scale, We might declare with our mouth that God is good, that God is great. But if we are honest with ourselves, there is a part of us deep inside that wants to question God's will and his goodness. Because in that moment of intense suffering, the question arises in our hearts, how can a good God allow that to happen to me? A follower, a lover of Christ, someone that's committed his or her life to Jesus with with all that I have, how can God allow this to happen to me? And this is why I've come to love the Psalms so much. Firstly, because it doesn't shy away from the reality of life, because suffering is real. It's all around us. And God makes no pretense in the Psalms by trying to sugarcoat and pretend like hardship is foreign to the Christian life. Secondly, in the Psalms, we find that God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves when it comes to worship in the midst of suffering. The very fact that this book, our scriptures, contain Psalms of lament means that lament is a legitimate form of worship. That might sound a bit strange to us, but the Psalms The fact that it contains lament psalms, psalms of mourning, suffering, and anguish, means that even in our suffering, lament, and anguish, that this is a legitimate form of worship. And more importantly, the psalms show us the righteous response of God's people in all seasons of life, both good and bad. Now, today's passage, uh, like I mentioned, is a lament psalm, and tradition has it that it was written by King David, 
Uh, some people say that because it's an acrostic poem that covers every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, they reckon that he wrote it to teach Solomon, his son, the alphabet. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, it was written by King David. And in today's psalm, we find many hints to suggest that David is experiencing a crisis moment in his life. Verse 19 says, I am a stranger on earth. That's what the NIV says, I think. Uh, ESV says, I'm a sojourner on earth. And, you know, when, when the Bible talks about I'm a stranger on the earth or I'm a sojourner on the earth, the common way that evangelicals like to interpret this is that, you know, this earth is not our home. Heaven is our home and we're just merely passing through. Maybe, maybe you've heard that interpretation before. Um, but I would argue that that's not the intention that David's trying to convey here. Because you have to remember that David, King David, uh, he's established one of the most successful kingdoms on the earth at that time. His empire is pretty much unrivaled. And so in a well-established kingdom, why would he feel like a sojourner or a stranger? I think that by calling himself a stranger, that it's an indication that David is facing so much adversity and chaos that his home no longer feels like home anymore. His home no longer feels like a sanctuary. And things have become so bad that his own home no longer gives him a sense of security or stability. And we know this because in verse 22, David reveals that he is the subject of scorn and contempt from a lot of people. And then verse 23, it says that rulers or princes in his own kingdom are plotting against him to bring about his downfall and his death. A lot of people in his own kingdom aren't happy with him. Imagine coming to FLM each week and you look around at everyone in the room and all of them are plotting your downfall and your demise. It wouldn't feel like home, would it? And so in the midst of this chaos, what does David do? He prays to God. And jumping back to the beginning of the passage, we see that despite all of his problems, David doesn't begin his prayer by asking God to make his problems disappear. In fact, he doesn't even God ask God to make it easier. Instead, in verses 17 and 18, he says, Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Very interesting prayer, isn't it? Because he could have he asked for stability. He could have asked for security. He could have asked for his enemies just to be wiped out in an instant. But instead, God, or David rather, asks God to be good to him. In the ESV translation, uh, David asks God to deal bountifully with him. And sometimes when we think of this kind of a blessing, we, we think of health, wealth, and prosperity, but that's not what he's asking for here. When David is asking for God to be good to him in verse 17, in verse 18, we find out what he's actually referring to. Because Hebrew poultry has, they use this technique called parallelism. Uh, and what parallelism is, is where a thought or a statement is repeated twice to kind of emphasize it or flesh out the meaning. And so what he's asking for in the first half of verse 17 is fleshed out in the first half of verse 18. And what he's asking for when he asks for goodness 
is for God to open his eyes to understand more of his word. And more importantly, to open his eyes so that in the midst of suffering, that David can remain obedient to the word of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God for physical, mental, spiritual, and financial help. In fact, God delights in prayer, our prayers. Uh, he desires us to call upon him. But what we find in today's psalm is that despite all of his problems, David asks God to open his eyes, not only to understand the word of God, but to be obedient to it so that he can remain faithful through the storm. And this kind of a prayer, believe it or not, is uh, very important, but it's very neglected uh, when it comes to the Christian life. If you're like me, you know, when suffering or chaos strikes, you know, whether physical, spiritual or mental, everything in life seems to lose its place. Uh, we, we look for it with a quick fix generation. We like to find an instant solution for everything. And when we don't find it, we have a tendency to spiral downwards and we end up in a spiritual crisis. But for the man or woman of God, according to the authority of the scriptures, we are never to take our eyes off Christ. Our enemy, Satan, is a master deceiver. He really is. He's been doing it since Genesis 1, since the beginning of time. He did it with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And his greatest weapon, you know, I love horror movies. Like, if you get to know me, you find I'm really twisted. I love horror movies. I, it's been my dream to see a ghost or a possession. Uh, and, you know, when we think of satanic attacks, we think of, you know, demonic possession and bodies levitating. And if you've seen The Exorcist, heads rotating 360 degrees. But his greatest weapon isn't any of this. His greatest weapon is to blur the lines of truth just enough so that you take your eyes off God and you take your eyes off his word. And so David says in verse 21, you rebuke the arrogant who are accursed, those who stray from your commands. Despite his aggressive language, David in this verse isn't talking about heathens or unbelievers. He's, talking about, he's not talking about people who are strangers to God's word or God's commands. He's talking about believers. And we know this because you don't wander away from the commands of God unless you were following them to begin with, do you? And so David is petitioning God in the midst of the crisis in his life. He wants clarity in his vision so that he can continue to remain focused understand and live out the word of God. Now, if we're to consider the Psalms as the righteous response of God's people, then we can't fall into the trap of just studying and learning what the righteous response should be. But we need to be training ourselves, equipping ourselves to live it out so that when a crisis does strike, we might be hurting or suffering. You will be hurting or suffering. But in the midst of the storm, if you train and equip yourselves, 
you might be hurting, but you're not lost. Despite Satan's best, best efforts to blur your path, we know that in the midst of the storm, what direction we need to be moving in. Now, I don't know how many UFC fans there are. I, I love MMA. I love any kind of combat sports I like watching. And a few years ago, there was a UFC lightweight championship bout between um, Conor McGregor and Eddie Alvarez. And like with any combat sport, there was a lot of trash talking between the fighters about how they're going to win and I'm going to finish you in the first round. You're going to KO. You're not even going to know where you are. Like this typical trash talk. And they each talked about their game plan, what they're going to do, what the strategy is going to be to win this fight and become the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, Eddie did a lot of talking, not past Eddie, but Eddie Alvarez did a lot of talking. Um, and a lot of trash talking, and he got blitzed by, it was like one of the most one-sided fights I've ever seen. It was so good to watch. But uh, after he got like absolutely wrecked, um, an interviewer came up to Eddie Alvarez after his loss, and they asked him, like, this is the worst thing to ask someone that lost, uh, that loses, like, what happened? <laughs> What happened? I lost. But he asked him, you know, what happened to that game plan, that master game plan that was going to get you the title? And Eddie looked at the reporter and he said, you know what? Everyone in their minds going into a fight has the perfect game plan. Uh, and it seems perfect until you get punched in the face and then you forget everything. <laughs> and as much as I love the NIV translation, uh, which is awesome, uh, I prefer the literal way the ESV translates uh, verse 17, because it says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Those words, that I may live. In other words, when life comes and punches you in the face, I don't want that game plan going out the window. I want to focus my mind and my heart to remain zeroed on Jesus Christ, our King, and his word, so that in the midst of the storm, I know which direction I need to be moving in. And what's important to point out as well is that David is not just thinking this. He's praying for this. And so often, I find myself, and I think not just me, but a lot of people, we learn so much of God's word. Like, I know much more about God's word than I did when I was 21, when I first became a Christian. Yet, our minds grow so big, and we fail to live it out, don't we? And we know what we should do, but then it becomes like what we should have done but didn't do. And many times, it's because of a lack of prayer. We have a tendency to think that by equipping ourselves with the word of God, then you, know, you, you learn the word of God, you grow your theology, and then it's up to you to kind of roll up your sleeves and do the rest of the work on your own. But you have to understand sanctification, your growth in holiness, you living this life, it's something that you do working hand in hand with the spirit of God. Your sanctification is you, together with the Holy Spirit, working to transform your life. You don't do it on your own. And so this kind of prayer, this idea of prayer is so important when it comes to studying the Scriptures because you can be smart and intelligent and have an immense knowledge of the Old Testament, the New Testament, biblical and th like systematic theology. 
But without prayer, this kind of Bible study has no transforming power. And for the Christian, when we call upon God through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Spirit of God opens our minds and our hearts so that the prayer of the psalmist in today's passage becomes our prayer. Verse 17, the psalmist's prayer, that I may live and keep your word. Verse 18, that our, one, our eyes may be opened to behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 19, that your commandments are not hidden from us. This prayer becomes our prayer. Now, there is something very remarkable about the power of God's word when the Holy Spirit uses it to shape a life. And I've been in youth ministry for like 10 years now, nine years, nine years. You lose count after a while. But uh, I've been in youth ministry for a while. And one of the tragic things I see is I meet so many young people that walk with Jesus or think they're walking with Jesus, but they never experience this. They never experience the spirit-shaping work of God as the word begins to transform their life. And it's not because God isn't faithful, but often it's because they haven't prayed the prayer of the psalmist. And this is the case for many people who claim to identify with Christ. They don't bother praying this prayer because they think this is too easy. The promises of God, it can't be this simple, but it is. And what they tend to do is fall into this cycle of maybe praying one time in their life, waiting for an instant answer because we are the instant generation. And then when they don't get it, they just kind of move on and try to find another way. And they'll never really live taking God at his word. And they never end up praying the prayer of the psalmist. Verses 17 and 18, I'll read it again. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, again, uh, I want to remind us of the context of the lament psalms. Remember that many times these writers prayed only to be met with silence from God. They didn't get an instant answer. In fact, they didn't even get a delayed answer. But one distinguishing feature about these writers was that they never, ever stopped chasing God. And so when trouble arises, it's imperative that we learn to navigate the storm of our life through the word of God, but also by praying the prayers of the psalmist. We can't continue to fall into this cycle of failure where we accumulate new knowledge about God's word but remain incapable of living it out. Now, I don't know what kind of problems you've experienced in life. Uh, certainly a lot of people experienced a crisis during the second lockdown, and maybe you're going through one right now. Uh, but for me, one of the greatest challenges 
in the Christian life is always knowing what to do when trouble strikes. I'm not a very emotional person. I don't like sharing my feelings. And I remember at one point my wife sat me down and was like, "We're gonna, you're gonna tell me your feelings." I'm like, "Oh no, this is so weird." But the question arises: when trouble strikes, how do you continue worshiping and following Jesus on a straight road? When your life starts to fall apart. Because it's very easy to theorize and talk about what a Christian should do in times of difficulty. You know, the number of people I've seen, a number of times I've seen Christians quote Romans 8.28 to people that are suffering. Like, like my lecturer at college was diagnosed with cancer and he was getting, you know, getting pumped with chemo and he was just in the really bad state. And someone came up to him and was like, don't worry, Malcolm. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Malcolm's like, this is not what I want to hear right now. But the reality is that suffering is multifaceted. It's hard and it's real. And many times there isn't a simple, instant black and white answer that can resolve the crisis. Sometimes, and you know this, sometimes the only answer is to endure the full brunt of suffering and just focus all your energy on the healing process. And so when we, look, when we encounter a lament psalm like today's, we're often left with that baffling question. What do we take away from a passage like this? If there's no happy ending, if all I'm left to do is suffer and just heal, what can you possibly apply from a passage like today's. And so what I want to do is um, conclude this sermon by sharing some observations uh, about today's passage and just lament psalms in general. And I hope you guys will find it helpful. Um, The first observation I want to make is what I mentioned at the beginning. Lament is a legitimate form of worship. Worship is not just rejoicing, celebration, and thanksgiving. But if we are to accept that the book of Psalms in its entirety is the book of worship in the scriptures, then we can't ignore the fact that such a huge portion of this book is dedicated to lament, pain, suffering, and anguish. And if if that's the case, just as suffering is not one-dimensional, our worship is not one-dimensional either. In fact, worship, if we understand this, becomes more dynamic because we realize that worship encompasses all seasons in life. So that when you feel like your heart is in the gutter, you know that even in that moment, I am capable of worshiping God in my lament and my suffering because lament is a legitimate form of worship. Because even in our lament, we are able to flee to Christ for our sanctuary. And this is meant to be a liberate, I hope it's a liberating truth, because our legalistic side often wants to think, you know, when, when things are going well, it's because our faith is in immaculate condition. And then when things aren't going well, it's because our faith, there's something wrong with it. But the reality is that the scriptures don't testify to that. In fact, if you, if you ever read, the, I love the book of Job. If I ever come back here again, to preach, I'll preach from Job. Uh, but if you ever read the book of Job, it's 42 chapters of a good guy suffering. Um, 
And we know he's a good guy because he's one of the few guys about which God says, this guy is up, upright and blameless. Like, if you're going to have someone say that about you, you'd want it to be God. And he, God himself says, Job, look at my servant. He is upright. He is blameless. He's a righteous guy. And yet, if you read through Job, everything goes wrong for him. And there's 42 chapters of Job. And he prays and he seeks advice from his friends who give him very poor advice. And he prays and he prays and God does not appear. In the 42 chapters, God does not appear until chapter 38. I'm pretty sure it's 38. And even when he does appear, he doesn't give Job a proper answer. Like Job's, like the whole of Job, he's like asking, why is this happening to me? And God appears in chapter 38 and he doesn't give him an answer. We see in Job, though, an individual whose lament became a legitimate form of worship because all the way up until chapter 38 when God appeared, we see an individual that did not stop chasing God. He had doubts. He had pain. He had anguish. He had suffering. But one thing he didn't do, he didn't stop chasing his God. And that leads me to my next observation. And I think a K-drama named themselves after this. I didn't name it after the K-drama. It's just coincidence. But it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, some people, I haven't seen it. Um, but sometimes when we see someone hurting, out of love, we want to make things right for them, don't we? We want to say the right thing, quote the right Bible verse to make them, oh, yeah, no, everything's going to be all right. And we do it with the best intentions because we love this person. Uh, sometimes people become overzealous and say things that they probably shouldn't say, like the guy did to my lecturer, Malcolm. Um, but what I want to point out is that if we are to take the Psalms as the righteous response of God's people in all seasons of life, then you have to acknowledge that according to the Psalms, that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. And what I mean by that is that sometimes, and as strange as this might sound in Australia, uh, in the Western world, it's okay to be hurting sometimes. It's okay to cry. I became, like, I never used to be emotional before I got married, but my wife, like, I don't know, I just, maybe I developed a heart. <laughs> but I cry, I cry a lot. After I got married, I started crying. I never used to cry. Um, but it's healthy to cry, especially as a Christian. And I believe genuinely that it's a grace of God that he's given us the ability to feel and experience emotions in this way because it's part of the healing process. Like one of the most healthiest things that you can do when you're hurting is to just cry it out. And cry it out in the context of a community. Cry it out with your friends. If your friends make fun of you, like mine do, maybe you need new friends. But often when the, when the going gets tough and becomes more than we can actually bear, uh, we often try to put on a brave facade, kind of grit our teeth, dig our feet in, and pretend like we're doing okay. But one of the blessings of the gospel is not just salvation, although that's, that's pretty important. Um, 
It's that through the person and work of Christ, we have a direct line to the Father, and we have an intimate relationship with each other. God gave us the community of church for a reason, so that when a crisis comes, we don't have to be hurting alone, and we don't have to think it's strange that we're hurting. But instead, we come to understand that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to be weeping, especially before God. And that leads me to my final observation, and that is to pray for sight, like eyesight, when the storm comes. I just said that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to be weeping. But as you're experiencing all of these things, in the midst of the storm, it is very important that you don't lose sight of Christ. Because it's the quickest way to allow Satan to shipwreck your faith. We saw that David in today's passage He's going through a lot. Like he's in, People in his kingdom, leaders in his kingdom are plotting his death. He's got a, just quite a lot of problems going on. And yet, in the midst of all the chaos, we see that he's got a Job-like mentality. He doesn't take his eyes off God. He keeps his eyes on the prize. He asks for God to open his eyes so that he can understand and live out God's word in obedience. In the midst of the storm, he prays for sight so that he can look to, look to God and keep following him. Uh, during the first lockdown, uh, I always wanted a dog. Uh, I, I begged my wife, can we please get a dog? Like, I really want a dog. And we, we bought a Maltese poodle. And um, he's very cute, a bit cheeky. Um, but he, you know, for anyone that's raised a dog, you know that when you get a puppy, they have something called separation anxiety. You know, they want to be with you all the time, and when you leave, they start barking. And our dog actually started howling, so we kind of locked him in our bedroom, and we went downstairs, and he started howling, like oh, kind of like howling. And you know, you, you you kind of just have to desensitize them to being separated. But I actually looked up one day, why, why do they howl? And a dog psychologist wrote an article and said that when they howl, it's a cry for help. They're separated from their parents, like they think that their owners are their parents, and the reason they howl, it's a cry so that their owners will be able to hear and know where they are and come find them. And I think as a people of God, we need to learn to cry out to God. You can't do this on your own. God gives us the community of church for a reason. If you try to grit your teeth and try to push through your problem by rolling up your sleeves and getting it through, getting through it on your own, you're going to crash and burn at some point. Maybe you might get over it like once or twice, but at some point you're going to hit a dead end and you're going to realize, I can't do this. This is too much. And so I encourage you guys to pray for sight in the midst of the storm. Even if you're hurting, I implore you to keep praying. If you feel nothing but silence from God, then again, I implore you to pray and emulate the psalmist by praying 
and continuing to pray. And what you'll find is that even in the midst of your suffering, even if you feel like you're just getting endless silence from God, something very strange will happen. Because verse 24 of today's passage will then become your prayer. Despite your circumstances, because verse 24 reads, and remember, we haven't had an answer from God yet to David's prayer. He's still praying. Despite that, though, David says in verse 24, your statutes are my delights. They are my counselors. It's a weird way to pray when your problems haven't been answered yet. But this is how David concludes this lament psalm. And that's what I want to conclude with today. And there's a lot more I could talk about this particular passage uh, and lament psalms in general. But just those three observations I hope will be helpful for you. Number one, lament is a legitimate form of worship. Number two, it's okay to not be okay. And number three, pray for sight when the storm comes. Let's pray to our God. Father, we thank you for the lament psalms. We thank you that you are not a God that sugarcoats uh, suffering, sugarcoats the, the reality of uh, the brutality of life sometimes. Uh, but instead, you are a God that gives us your word, uh, that gives us a word that is reflective of reality. Uh, that in the lament psalms, that we can resonate with what the psalmist is feeling and be able to understand what the righteous response of your people should be in all seasons, especially those of lament and suffering. Help us to be a people uh, that comes to understand that it's okay to not be okay, uh, that prays for sight in the midst of a storm, uh, and makes the most of this, this community that you've given us that we call church. I pray this for FLM, I pray this for myself and for my wife, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.